All right, guys. Hey, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, so as you make your way to your seat, uh, if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those. Um, if you uh, if you have one, when you get to your seat, uh, if you would open back up to Genesis chapter 30, that's where we're going to be this morning, Genesis 30 and 31. Um, what a wild story, right? Um, Simon, thanks for reading for us, man. Um, I don't know how... Uh, how engaged you were. Like, I love hearing narrative read. Like, I really do. I love hearing narrative read. And um, one of the things that I so enjoy about the way that we uh, that we do the reading of the Scripture prior to our time together uh, is that we're able to just read it uninterrupted, right? Uh, you're not hearing, hearing a portion of it read, followed by some comments or commentary, uh, followed by another portion, but we just get to hear it in its entirety. And that works out really well when it comes to reading narrative. And so um, I don't know if you were engaged during that particular portion, uh, but man, what a strange, beautiful, like incredible story um, that we are going to uh, that we're going to be working through this morning. So um, Genesis chapter thirty, that's where we are. If you will notice, we skipped a portion. Uh, I'll give you a bit of a, a bit of a summary of what we see in those previous verses that we did not read, which makes up Genesis thirty verse one through twenty four, um, which really kind of falls a little bit more in line with where we were last week. We've seen a bit of a transition take place at this point in the story where we pick up this morning, and so we have uh, we have decided to uh, start there. There's a question, though, however, that I want us to, to consider as we work our way through the passage um, this morning. We did this last week, kind of give you guys a question that we, that we consider as we work our way through, and I want to do uh, something similar this week. And so the question is this, okay? Make note of this, type this in your, your notes function, uh, margin of your Bible, kind of whatever that looks like. What does it look like to live in a world of consequence while at the same time holding to the certain fulfillment of God's promise for the future? Let me say that one more time because it's really two parts, right? What does it look like to live in a world of consequence? That's part one, right? We're familiar with this. We get this. We understand what this looks like. We're um, cause and effect, right? Like we understand, we comprehend, we've seen this, we've felt this. What does it look like to live in a world of, of consequence where there are consequences for the decisions that we make, for certain sinful practices, right? There are, uh, there are always consequences. Perhaps you're feeling those in your very life right now. We are certainly engaged with a a character in this particular narrative that is most familiar with consequence for sinful decisions. But there's a second part to this, right? What does it look like to live in a world of consequence while at the same time holding to the certain fulfillment of God's promise for the future? What does it look like to live in a world of consequence while at the same time Holding to the certain fulfillment of God's promise for the future. So we live in a world that is, um, that is a, a, a consequence-esque type world, right? Like we're familiar with that. But for as God's people, what does it look like to live in a world where there are consequences for, um, for sinful decisions, there are consequences for certain actions that we, that we feel that you are perhaps even this morning experiencing while holding on to this, this, this assuredness of God's fulfillment of his promise for the future. Right? Knowing that we're, that we're going somewhere. Knowing that, that, God's, that God has a plan, that God has a purpose, that God has a mission, and that it's being accomplished is, uh, is, is certain. What does it look like to, to live in this world? Through this book, we see time and time again God's 
election and commitment to the undesirable. Characters that have black eyes, the Lord electing to, and his kindness and generosity to work in them and work through them, choosing to extend his blessing in spite of constant failure and undesirable behavior. We observe from Genesis 28 through 30 God's redemptive purposes in the life of Jacob, as well as the disastrous after effects of living a life within one's own strength and devices absent of an intentional reliance on the Lord. The first 23 verses of Genesis chapter 30 run right alongside what we discussed last week from Genesis chapter 29. So let's take a moment and let's recap. All right, last week we, we witnessed God's continued work through Jacob's deception. Right, producing, producing offspring as we begin to see the promise of Genesis chapter 28 be fulfilled in the life of Jacob. We witness God working through Jacob's deception, including, as we come into uh, this week, the polygamous relationship that he now finds himself in to accomplish his mission. That being the birth of a nation through whom would come the Redeemer of the world. Happy Palm Sunday, right? From Genesis 29, we see God open the womb of Leah, the unwanted, unloved elder daughter of Laban. Resulting in the birth of the first four of twelve sons that would eventually become the twelve tribes of Israel. What would follow as chapter 30 is opened is the birth of seven more sons, four from the servants of Leah and Rachel, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, two more from Leah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and finally Joseph, born from Rachel. Included among these, the aforementioned Judah, Levi, Simeon, and Reuben. We see 11 of the 12 tribes coming in Genesis 29 and 30, leaving only Benjamin, whose birth we would read of in Genesis 35. God's been doing a lot, hasn't he? There's a lot that's been going on as this, as this nation is being birthed. We observe here the genesis of the nation of Israel in Genesis 29 and 30. At the same time, though, right, tensions are high within this family. You get a great glimpse of this through the first 24 verses of Genesis chapter 30. Tensions are, are high within this family, given that they are living Functioning outside of God's design and desire for the institution of marriage. Consequences, right, for, for actions that have been that have been taken. Through difficulty, however, the Lord has remained faithful. Amen? The Lord remains faithful and committed to his word to multiply Joseph's descendants. How gracious is the Lord. Right, how, how faithful and committed is our God to his word. If this were all he did, right, it would be, it would be enough to, to affirm these truths of who our God is. Only it's not all that he does. Right, he, doesn't, he doesn't stop. 
Instead, his generosity and and kindness persists as we see through the second half of Genesis chapter 30, where we are going to spend a majority of our time this morning, the growth that God grants in the life of Jacob as he clings to the promise of God. Going back to Genesis chapter 28, in spite of the, the years that have passed, Jacob continues to look forward. And so we've even begun to answer our question just in reviewing what we saw last week and then what we find from the first 24 verses of Genesis chapter 30, right? What does it look like to live in a world of, of consequence? As God's people, man, we cling to the promises of the Lord. We rest in the gracious kind character and nature of our God. We affirm these truths as we, as we dive into and abide in his word, as we eat the book. And we know more and more about, about who God is that provides this encouragement for his people, right? And for those who perhaps even in this season are perhaps outside of the fold to, to come to their king. As we come into chapter 25, as I mentioned earlier, we see a bit of a transition. And so let's let's go there. Let's begin in in Genesis chapter 30, verse 25. This this transition and really strange, strange story uh, from the second half of Genesis chapter 30. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, which we just discussed, Jacob said to Laban, send me away. That I may go to my own home and country. Verse 26. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go. For you know the service that I have given to you. Let's remember where we are in the story. Okay, Jacob has spent 14 years at this point in service to wily Uncle Laban. And just as the day came for Jacob to take for himself his first bride Leah, the day has now arrived for Jacob to depart from the region of Haran, Padamaran, return to the promised land. Certainly all parties involved would have come into this day most aware that what was to take place would not be easy. After all, let's step back and let's consider it from Laban's perspective for just a moment. He is going to, in in following verses, emphasize the blessing that he has experienced monetarily, possessionally, as a result of Jacob's work. And of course, Jacob knows, right? Laban has made it clear that he is self-serving and that his leaving, Jacob's leaving, was not going to go over as well as one would have hoped. Jacob has seen from his uncle on multiple instances a willingness to lie and manipulate any and every situation for his own personal gain. Right from his earliest recorded effort displayed through his conversation with Eleazar. Do you remember that? To his handling of of Jacob's courtship of of Rachel, his marriage to Leah, the gifting of a single maid for each of his daughters as they transition into the care of Jacob. There are literally 
multiple examples observable that would cause us to be skeptical of any possibility of this scene ending well for Jacob. His most recent act of manipulation being laid out for us in verse 27. Look there with me. Laban said to him, if I have found favor in your side, I have, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Therefore, verse 28, name your wages and I will give it. And the, the promises of God for this family, going all the way back to Jacob's grandfather Abraham, include the, the blessing of those who would bless them and the cursing of those who would curse them. Laban here demonstrates a clear comprehension of the benefits that he received from the work of Jacob and God's choosing to bless the work of his hands. It's with this in mind that Laban presents Jacob with this most recent proposition. Jacob, name your price. What is it going to cost me right, to, to withhold, right, to, to hold on to you, to continue to employ you, to continue to reap the benefits of the blessing that you are? obviously a recipient of from the Lord. This is benefiting me greatly. I've demonstrated a clear track record of being self-serving. And so as a result, what do we need to do to make this thing happen? What do we need to do to make sure that you don't leave, but in fact, stay? To which Jacob responds, verse 29, you yourself know how I've served you and how your livestock has fared with me. In fact, you had little before I came. But as you can see, it has increased abundantly. And the Lord, and this is going to become a refreshing pattern from the life of Jacob that we observe through Genesis chapter 30. Think about what we have seen from Jacob up until this point. Think about what we observed just a few weeks ago from the life of Jacob. Not a life that seemed to, at every possible turn, demonstrate an unwillingness to express gratitude to the Lord. Right, to give the Lord right the, the attention for what he has indeed done in the life of Jacob. And yet here, man, there's this refreshing turn that we observe through the life of Jacob. You can see it has increased abundantly, Jacob says, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? Right, I've got a family now. Like, when am I begin, supposed to begin providing for them, meeting the needs of my own family? Verse 31, he said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. What a change that we observe through the life of, of Jacob. Right? Perhaps for the first time, a shift in Jacob's character. If you remember, we, we talked a few weeks ago about how, how, and there was a recognition from Laban, right? That, that he and Jacob were cut from the same cloth, right? For Laban, this, this self-serving, selfish individual, right? He's able to look upon Jacob and he goes, oh yeah, you and I, man, we are cut from the same cloth. Right, we're, from the same, we're from the same family. We display similar tendencies. The same self-serving nature that is observable in me, I observe in you. Not flattering. 
Right? Uncle Laban is not the guy that you want to be compared with. Oh yeah, Jacob, right? Just like Uncle Laban. <laughs> that is not flattering. Certainly undesirable. And yet as we come to this portion of the story, we begin to see this transition that has taken place. Hold on to that because that's going to be really, really, really important as we conclude our time together this morning. Don't give me anything, he says, verse 31. But if you will do this for me, Jacob says, then I will again pasture your flock and keep it. So Jacob has something in mind. And he lays it out for Laban in verse 32. Let's look to verse 32. What are the conditions of Jacob remaining on with Laban? Verse 32. Jacob says, let me pass through all of your flock today. Let us gather together the flock and let me begin to to work my way through. Let me navigate my way through, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep. Every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats. And they shall be my wages. This will be what it will cost. Let's bring the flock together and I'll work my way through. And I'll pick out these particular among the flock. And they shall be made mine. Verse 33. And this thing's going to be all above board. Again, a transition in the life of, of Jacob. Right? We actually see a guardrail put up right, to make clear that everything is, is to be done righteously. It's to be done rightly. There is no deception. Jacob has shown a track record of deceptive behavior, has he not? Right? Now we see Jacob saying, in fact, let's have this particular, uh, this particular guardrail in place to, to make sure that there is no dishonesty, to make sure that there is no deception. He says, verse 33, my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs. Hey, if it's found with me, it shall be counted as stolen. You know what the cost, the price for for thievery in this day would have been? This is incredible. Jacob is placing it all on the line here, right? He's pushing it all to the center of the table. Let's do this thing right. All right. Let's do this thing. Let's do this thing in a in a really legitimate manner. The sheep and lambs that Jacob presents as possible payment for his labor would have most definitely represented the minority of the flock. Thus Laban could not help but to agree with such favorable terms. Right from his perspective, as Jacob was proposing taking possession of the exception among the flock. Right, as the flock was gathered together, it would not be as though you would look out and see speckled and spotted lambs and goats everywhere. This is not the way that it would have, have worked. That would have been a, a representation of the minority. And so again, let's place ourselves in a, in a, in a self-seeking mindset. Let's embrace a a business-type model for just a moment. Laban says, man, I have done nothing but benefit from the Lord's blessing you and that which which you are a participant in, Jacob. And so when I seek to bring you back on and then you lay before me terms that seem to work toward my favor and your disadvantage, 
Man, how in the world would anyone expect Laban to respond? We see it in verse 34. Good. Man, what a stellar deal for me. Let it be as you have said, Laban says. We see here a response from Laban that mirrors that of Jacob's proposal. Right, do, you, do you remember what that looked like? As he, as he said, for your daughter Rachel, I'll, I'll work seven years laying on the table a deal that would have been impossible for Laban to pass up. And so he says, absolutely, of course I'll take this. Again, though, we've seen this transition take place, or we're observing this transition having taken place in the life of Jacob. Laban, I will continue to work for you for what would amount to six more years. If my wages would consist of every speckled and spotted lamb and goat from among your flock. Man, what do we know about Uncle Laban? <laughs> this dude is a scoundrel, right? It makes him, he is so, he is so shady that he makes me want to use pirate language, right? Like, I mean, just a, like a scallywag. Like, this dude is a bum. What would old deceptive Laban have in store for Jacob this time? We get a glimpse in verse 35, We're walking through the narrative. That day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his son. So he removes from the flock all of the sheep, lambs, goats that would have made uh, this, this deal more favorable for Jacob, verse 36. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Why three days? Simple enough, right? Laban is guarding against any type of of tomfoolery among the, among the animals here, right? Let's get these things far enough apart so when, when breeding season arrives, right, that there's enough distance that we don't, have any, we don't have any mixing or mingling going on here, right? Laban is attempting to stack the deck in his favor. The wages of Jacob that he has requested, remember, are not the rule, but in fact the exception. They would have made up a, a much smaller minority of the flock. Laban now is, is seeking to all the more right, take advantage of the situation, to, to increase opportunity for gain, minimizing loss. Despite Laban's concession that his wealth is a result of Jacob's work being blessed by the Lord. Do we catch the irony here? <laughs> right? Like Laban's aware. Like Laban has articulated that, that the blessing that I have experienced, right, the, the blessing that I have, the possession that is mine, is a result of the Lord's blessing, your work, your labor. And yet now, and Laban seeks to, to gather it all in. We see characteristics of a selfish heart in Laban, don't we? 
We see characteristics of a, of a self-seeking heart in Laban, don't we? We see characteristics in Laban that serve to expose selfishness within each one of us, don't we? Absolutely. At this point, it appears as though Jacob has an uphill battle, doesn't it? Right, Jacob's got, a, got an uphill battle before him as he seeks to establish a sizable flock for his growing family moving forward. However, Jacob has a plan. Jacob has a plan, verse 37. Jacob took fresh sticks. This is, again, where the story gets like, what? <laughs> right? When we say in the beginning, man, what a strange story. Everything up until this point, like, we can follow right along with, right? I don't see anything strange about all this. When we come to this portion of the story, it becomes a little strange. Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plain trees and peeled white streaks in them. Whittler Jacob. Exposing the white of the sticks. Verse 38. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs. That is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. Why? Well, we are assured that all of the flock will gather in this particular place, right? And so thus, in an effort that this plan may may be um, most successful, let's put it in a place where they are already coming. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. Wait a second. <laughs> Did you guys catch that? How strange. Right? So, so Jacob lays before the trough these, these sticks, right, that have been peeled so that the whites are, are, are observable. He lays them before the trough, and as um, all of the animals come to the trough and they, they begin to, to breed, man, what a mess this trough must have been. Like, this just sounds like insane. They see the sticks that are striped, whites displayed, thus looking speckled or spotted, right? We kind of follow the, the train of thought here, what's going on. And as a result, the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. They breed in front of the sticks that are striped, speckled, and spotted as a result of the whites being displayed. And, and then, consequently, there are striped, speckled, and spotted born from among the flock. Now, I'm not a farmer. Okay, like I'm not familiar with like how if this is like legit, like if this is typically certainly this is something that that those would have been aware of. Right. Many would have been aware of this idea that if you bred in a certain fashion before these certain objects that it might serve to bring forth a, a stronger flock or particular type. We're going to find out in just a moment where this idea comes from for Jacob. But let's pick up with verse 40. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the face of the flock toward the stripes and, and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own, uh, his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. And so as there are speckled and spotted from among the flock, there's this separation that takes place. An effort to continue breeding among the speckled and spotted so that you might have more what? Speckled and spotted, right? Are we following the the thought process here of of Jacob? Jacob is now like maximizing return. Verse 41. 
Not only is he maximizing return in terms of the number that are represented, but he is ensuring a strong flock for himself and his family. Verse 41, whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. Verse 42, but when the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there, right? So when the, when the weak ones were breeding, no sticks. No sticks for you. Why? Not interested in like reproducing you. Right? It's not, it's not going to be most beneficial. Right? So, so we lay the sticks out for the strong of the flock, thus producing strong offspring while removing the sticks for the feebler of the flock. Now, what this is Laban's flock that Jacob is building up, and it's his own flock that he's going to take. Do we get that? And so the numbers are being, are being mounted in Jacob's favor while they're diminishing for old wily Uncle Laban. Not only that, but Jacob's got some stout flock while Laban's got some weak flock, right? Weak flock, strong flock, multiple in numbers, like beginning to diminish, right? We've got years that are passing on. Certainly they are, they are dying and, and the reproductive efforts are not bringing forth the fruit that Laban would have so desired. You guys get it, right? You kind of get what's going on here. Verse 43. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and, and donkeys. Here's what we can say about what's taking place here. Jacob is prospering greatly. Jacob is is prospering. As these six years come to a close, Jacob's flock consists of strong, speckled, and spotted sheep and goats, all in spite of Laban's best efforts to cheat his own family. Not only that, but Laban's sons have the nerve to accuse Jacob of stealing their father's wealth. What do we know about the wealth of Laban? How is that brought about? It's a, it's a result of the Lord choosing to bless the work of Jacob and Laban himself reaping the benefits of that. And now, insert these guys. All right, who want to talk about how, how Jacob is just, is just stealing from their father's wealth. Now, perhaps in the past, they would have a case. After all, this was the reputation that Jacob had rightfully earned given his past actions. However, in this situation, things are very, very different. In fact, as we come out of Genesis chapter 30, there is one super practical question that many are likely wrestling with, and that is this. And how did Jacob know to multiply his flock with these sticks? Because let's be clear. Right? If, we, if we trace back six years prior, Jacob is now seeking to, to ensure a, a strong and prosperous future for he and his family. All in line with what the Lord has promised that he would do through Jacob and in Jacob and this family as time moves forward. In all of this, we find the answer to the question that we've asked in Genesis chapter 31. How did Jacob know? Or how, did, how did Jacob know? How did, how did all of this happen the way that it has? Up until this point, we have seen 
time and time again. Jacob relying on his own strength and intuition, haven't we? Right, the, the labor, the work of his own hands. Go back to his, to his introduction into Haran. Right, removing the stone from the well himself. Self-seeking. Observable, recognized, and articulated from Laban himself. Remember the situation with, with Rachel. And then, and then later on, again, for Rachel. How does Jacob know? Let's look at chapter 31, verse 2. Transitioning. Shockingly, Laban's feelings toward Jacob have changed as a result, as a result of what's taken place over the last six years. Right, Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Really? Anyone surprised by this? Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father's. And to your kindred, and I will be with you. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. Right, we go back to Genesis chapter 28, and we heard it there. We go, we go back to the, to the promises of God to, to Abraham and to Isaac, and we see them there. Again, God's character and reputation are on display. He is faithful, and he is committed to his work. He is committed to mission. Man, so encouraging for you and I as we gather here together this morning. Verse 4, so Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. Man, think about what we have learned from Jacob. Even going back to, our, to our, some of our first interactions with Jacob. Are we see from, from Jacob this, this desire to perhaps even please his mother, right? Certainly not fearful of the consequences that come along with sinning against his father and against the Lord. And we've observed this, this, this a, a bit of a, a selfish, timid nature maybe from Jacob over the, over the years. And yet now the narrative has changed. Jacob's confidence has, has changed. Laban doesn't think so highly of me anymore. Guess what? I am not most concerned with that. What does he say as we continue on? But the God of my father has been with me. I see your father doesn't regard me with the favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. There's this distinction that takes place, isn't there? Man, this is incredible. There's a great distinction here between, between Jacob's focus right, and, his, and his perspective. doesn't stop there, but it continues on into verse 6. You know that I've served your father with all of my strength. Yet your father has cheated me, changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. What we observe here, I want you guys to hear this. Okay, what we uh, observe here is a beautiful example of the fruit of the faithfulness of God in the lives of people. What we see here is a, a beautiful, clear example of the fruit of the faithfulness of God in the lives of people. And the one that calls us into a 30,000 foot view of sanctification. 
Again, God's working to transform Jacob into this, into this image, into this person that is most glorifying to him. Time has been lost. Remember, years have passed. As Jacob left the promised land earlier on, he was hoping to be gone but a few days. And now we see years and years and years have passed. Consequence of Jacob's deception and short-sightedness. Consequence of a failure to trust in God. And yet now, now, here in this scene, Jacob is able to say, just as God promised, he has been with me. Just as God promised, he has been with me. Laban cheated me, but God protected me. Not only that, but he is the one who made clear this plan that has resulted in this flock that you see before me. The second lesser known vision that Jacob receives in these chapters we read in the book of Genesis. Look with me at verse 8. Where did all this come from? Who is it that has prospered the hand of Jacob? We know that it's been the Lord, but oh, how we know it's been the Lord as we continue on reading. Verse 8, if he had said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all of the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all of the flock bore striped. Thus, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Man, the unrighteous, unrighteousness will not ultimately prosper. Okay, do we get that? Right? Unrighteousness, deception, and sin will not ultimately prosper. We are in need as God's people of hearing this, aren't we? Man, we live in a world. We live in a world in which it seems as though deception brings about prosperity. Right, that, that self-centeredness and self-seeking behavior produces prosperity. Man, what we find here is encouragement for God's people. Right, to, to look to the Lord and to trust in the Lord in a world of consequence, to trust in the Lord and the faithfulness of His promise and provision. It doesn't matter as we observe what's going on in the world around us and it appears as though everyone else has it better than we do. What do we know? It becomes clear as we lean into, into this narrative. It becomes clear as we lean into this narrative that unrighteousness does not equate with great prosperity. That it will ultimately be taken away right in this life or the next. That it will become ash. That it will be burned up. That it will be brought to nothing. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Verse 10. In the breeding season of the flock, we're continuing on in the dream. That was, a, that was an aside. We're continuing on in the dream here, right? In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and I saw in a dream. That the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and molted. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. Verse 12. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and molted. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. 
where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. It becomes clear as we read verses verses 8 through 13, that it is indeed the Lord who has blessed the work in the hands of Jacob. It is the Lord who has brought about prosperity as those who have elevated themselves are being brought to ruin. Right? And those who have been humbled greatly are being exalted. Thus the way of the Lord. This is the way that he works. This is the way that he functions. In Genesis chapter 28, God promises to be with Jacob. He promises to keep Jacob and to bring Jacob back to the promised land to which Jacob responds. If God will be with me in these ways, then the Lord shall be my God. A statement that we recognized at the time to be most misdirected. God, having laid out his unconditional promise, is met with a conditional statement. Such as this from Jacob. And one that fails to reflect a a true and honest, a genuine trust in the Lord. Yet now, through years of difficult circumstance and hardship, Jacob articulates the statements that we have just read. Statements that seem to indicate, at least from Jacob's position, a relationship with and trust in God that had been previously lacking. Do you remember what Jacob said? We just read it. Right? This, this God was Jacob's God, and he has become Jacob's God. He could not have understood it at the time, but now the blessings of the Lord beyond his flock and this call to return home are clear. Jacob displays trust in God. Jacob displays obedience to God and a fuller understanding of the presence of God as he prepares to walk out of Haran than he did when he came in. The Lord is now truly Jacob's God. And Jacob is prepared to surrender everything for him. If you remember when Jacob left home, what did he leave? What was the promise that that he heard right towards the very end as he was walking out of the promised land toward Haran for refuge and safe haven from his brother who desired to kill him? I'll send word. Right? When Esau chills out, when Esau relaxes, like not just a tad, but a ton, I'll send word and you can come back home. Jacob's preparing to head home, but it's not because he received word from his mother. <laughs> it's because he's received word from the Lord. Right? The Lord says now. Right now it is time. He's been doing something incredible in the life of Jacob over these past years. This is how the Lord does things. This is the work of sanctification in the life of God's people. It is oftentimes strenuous and difficult. And yet we see that as as Jacob prepares to leave the promised land, to prepares to leave for the promised land, that he seems to be an altogether different person than he was when he came in. And the Lord has done his work. He has glorified himself in this transformation that has taken place in the life of Jacob. He has displayed clearly for all of God's people that wickedness does not prosper. 
right? But the ways of the Lord are sure. And so we, we revisit this question that we asked in the beginning, right? What does it look like to live in a world of consequence as a people holding to the certain fulfillment of God's promise for the future? Two areas of consideration. First, for the Christian. Right, for, for the Christian, we live in a way, we desire to now live in a way that points towards the sustaining power of God. We desire to, to live lives that, that point towards, towards Him and, and His grace observable through the gospel. Right, the decisions that we make are, are gospel-inspired decisions. Response to to hardship and difficulty, gospel-inspired. Our understanding of events in our lives are shaped by the gospel. In spite of hardship, in spite of difficulty, wow. Man, God keeps. Wow, God God protects. Wow, God saves and, and blesses and changes us. And all out of a heart of of kindness and generosity that serve to magnify his goodness. We come to the end and we go, man, Jacob has, has been changed, but this doesn't lead us into this great appreciation for Jacob, but it leads us into great appreciation for God. We consider this reality in light of the season in which we are in. As we reflect on the events of the week leading up to Easter, Genesis 30 and 31, drive us towards this week. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all in accordance with the scriptures, all magnifying the goodness of God as a blessing to the nations. That's how we respond as Christians. Now, if we're, if we're here and we are, are, are not Christians, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're skeptical to the faith, or you're seeking to faithfully in your life and weekly rhythms engage those who are not Christians, which I would certainly encourage you to do. We are to be a missional people, right? We embrace humility and, and lowly posture, reliance on the Lord, confidence in the power of the gospel to transform the hardest of human hearts. Man, as we seek to, to consider the ways that what we read this morning relates to, to the non-Christian, man, the call is clear, right? The call is, is clear to believe by faith that the perfect life and death of Jesus is able to bring about in this life and the next great blessing. Now get this. Now this is where the distinction lies. It's not a a blessing as the world would so define it, but as God would define it. And so what are we, what are we communicating? What is the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is this, man, that, that Christ rescues us. He rescues us from, from sin and consequence of sinful action. Ushering us into man, the eternal kingdom, fellowship with God, and great joy. The call is to look upon God, that he might become your God as you turn from sin and embrace Jesus as king. And so what is the call, man? As we close out our time, the call is this. Look to Christ. Right? The call is this. Look to Jesus. Love Jesus. And follow Jesus. Hey, let's pray together.